This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so very thankful for your word, for the living word, our Savior who died on the cross for us, was buried, rose again, that we might have everlasting life, that death might be conquered, and that we know that those who have trusted in Christ as Savior, the instant that they are absent from the body, they are face to face with you, and that there is no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain for the old things that passed away. Father, we thank you for the certainty of our salvation, the assurance of our salvation. We thank you that you have a destiny for us, that you have not saved us just so we can enjoy uh, being in heaven with one another, with our loved ones, but that we might live for you to glorify you and to be a witness, a testimony to the angels and to all creation of your grace. And Father, that there is a time when we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, and that as we're studying, we need to learn to live in light of that event, postponing uh, gratification of illegitimate as well as legitimate desires in this life that we might have our eye fixated upon that future uh, destiny that we all have in preparation for that which comes later, that is, ruling and reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we keep in mind our purpose to glorify you in all things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning. And we are going to be looking, first of all, after we get through a review of Romans 8:17 we're looking at the spiritual skills these are skills that this is sort of a summary of the basic skills that are necessary to live the christian life they are the skills that are necessary to stay in fellowship but if we break fellowship with god because of sin the first skill which is simply to uh to confess sin gives us the opportunity to be cleansed 
and to be restored to a position where we can continue to grow spiritually. So we're looking at these specific skills, and we've come to the one that is identified as a personal sense of our eternal destiny, living in light of eternity. So last time what we learned was that salvation is not by works, but it is for good works, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. That doesn't mean that whatever we do that is in the realm of morality somehow counts. We have to understand that these works are not works we produce out of our sin nature, but they are the works that God the Holy Spirit produces within us as we walk by the Spirit. And that eventually there is an evaluation. All Christians will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And 1 Corinthians, that should be 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And third, that all are saved eternally. That is, all who trust in Christ, but not all, receive rewards. And that's in 1 Corinthians, again, 3.15. Last week I made that slide and... I kept thinking two instead of three. And we saw in 2 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, that all run the race. But some are disqualified at the end, that that does not mean that we lose our salvation, but that we are disqualified from rewards. It's saying the same thing that uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 15 is saying, that there, there are some who have no rewardable works, but they are saved, yet it's through fire. So it's very clear that there are two categories of believers once we enter into heaven. There are those that have been rewarded, whether small or large, and there are those who have not been rewarded. But all are saved, all have resurrection bodies, all have a close fellowship with the Lord for all eternity, but they will differ in their roles. They will differ in their privileges. They will differ in their responsibilities, as we're going to see. There are basic things to remember. First of all, good works are not inevitable. That is the teaching of lordship salvation. They have confused experiential sanctification with justification. You will often hear people look at someone they know or someone who is in the public eye, and they will say, I can't believe they're a Christian. They say they're a Christian, but they don't live like it. They can't really be saved. What are you saying? You're saying that if there aren't any works, then you weren't really saved. That's lordship salvation. There are many people that are in the public eye, and due to testimony of pastors or their own lips, they have said that they believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior. And they have said that at one point or another, or their pastor knew that they had, but their lives certainly don't indicate that they've ever learned a spot of the Word of God. And they are as bad or worse than many unbelievers. So good works are not inevitable. They are not the barometer of our salvation. They might be the metric for our spiritual maturity, but even we cannot evaluate our own lives in terms of what was produced by the Spirit and what was not. After being saved, we have a second decision to make, and that is to decide to grow 
by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, regeneration, being born again, does not minimize our sin nature, make it less potent. It is still very much as potent as it was before. However, its unique authority in our lives has been broken, so that now we have a choice. And as Paul puts it in Romans 6, we have to choose whether we are going to go back and remain bond slaves to our sin nature, or whether we are going to press on and live out the fact that our new position is really to be slaves of righteousness. And then third, these skills that we're talking about are how we stay in fellowship, how we control the sin nature, how we make decisions, conscious, conscientious, conscious decisions that, no, I'm not going to let my sin nature control me at this point. Five minutes later, we all know that that is going to change. But we hope that as time goes by, it's less and less so. Now, in this lesson, we're going to continue to see that there are two categories of errors. And we're going to go to this one passage, Romans 8:17, which tells us that there is one group that are called heirs of God and another that are called heirs of Christ if we suffer with him. So we need to look at that passage and understand it, and we also have to understand what, is, what suffering is and why we suffer. So that's all we're going to really accomplish today. And one of those mornings when, as I got up and I began to think through what I was going to teach today, and I was reading through my Bible, so I was sitting there sipping on my cup of coffee, and I read through a passage in Jeremiah that we'll have to come back to next week, but that led me to other thoughts and other thoughts, and I thought, I really don't want Living in Light of Eternity to be a 10-lesson series. But my brain was working overtime this morning, and there is a lot that we need to yet understand about this. This is a very important uh, subject because it is comparable to the kinds of... When you reach that point where you're beginning to develop this this long-term look where you're thinking about not just living for today, not just satisfying your, the twinges and lusts of your sin nature in the moment, you begin to think, I really can postpone that. You know, it's sort of like a diet. You've been there. I'm not going to eat that donut or that cookie or have that bowl of ice cream. 30 minutes later, you have that cookie or donut or bowl of ice cream. But as you think about it and you realize I'm never going to achieve the goal I want if I keep yielding to that craving from my belly to have that sugar or whatever it is you desire, that piece of bread or loaf of bread or whatever it might be, you realize that you're able to, the more you're able to focus on that end result, the more you're able to say no to the temptation. And that's what happens in spiritual growth. It doesn't happen in a week or a day or a year or even 10 years in some areas or longer because we still have that nasty little sin nature. 
I was reminded of uh, something a pastor said. I'm going to modify it a little bit this morning because some people get the wrong idea about pastors. And this particular pastor, some of you know of whom I speak, once said, all pastors are sinners. All a pastor is is a sinner with a spiritual gift. We all have sin natures. We're all sinners. We all think things that would shock others. We all say things at times that might shock others. And sometimes we do things that even shock ourselves because we're all sinners. We're sinners who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners who are uh, growing gradually year by year, day by day. And at times we rise to levels of spiritual maturation that, that surprise us. And then the next day, well, there we are back in the pigsty again. But that's how we grow spiritually. It's, it's not a one-shot decision, not walking the aisle, raising your hand, or any of the other manipulative things that have come out of American revivalism. It is just this steady course of learning the Word, applying the Word, changing the way we think, and it takes time. The older you were when you were saved may make it more difficult, especially if you have imbibed deeply of the world system and have have satisfied the lusts of your sin nature to large degrees. But I have some, seen some people who have reached a point where so they're so dissatisfied with the garbage in their soul that the instant they trust Christ, they turn on a dime, a 180-degree shift that is so shocking to people around them that everybody has whiplash. But they still have to grow. They still have to mature. So that's how we're talking about these particular skills because they're so necessary. So we've looked at the importance of confession of sin to enter into that soul fortress as I've talked about it, that God is to recognize and live as if God is our defense. He is our protector. He's our shield. He's our strong tower. The metaphors go on and on in the Old Testament. We've looked at the filling by the Holy Spirit. It's walking by the Spirit, and as we walk by the Spirit, He fills our souls with the Word of God. As we learn the Word of God, we're able to exercise that faith rest drill. We trust the Scriptures. We trust in the Lord, and we claim those promises, and we see God answer those prayers. We learn about grace, and we know that we must conform our thinking to grace and not be so judgmental of other believers because we wouldn't want them to be judgmental about us when we sin and we fail. So we have to treat one another in grace and leave it up to the justice of God. And then we talked about a doctrinal orientation, which is conforming our thinking, aligning it to the Word of God, and that just takes a lot of time. That takes being in Bible class. It takes reading your Bible. It takes memorizing Scripture. It is something that you must do intentionally. You can't just say, well, it's going to happen as I grow up. No, it won't. We have to put these things into place and say, I'm going to do these things. And we have to set a pattern and set a schedule. 
in order to do that and set that up so that we work according to the plan and not just be totally responsive to uh, the circumstances of life. So part of that will lead us to this point where we begin to learn that we're headed for something glorious and that we have to prepare for it. We're in boot camp, as it were. And what happens upon graduation, just as in the military, you'll be evaluated. And some people in a boot camp class will have done exceptionally well, and they'll have more opportunities, and they'll be able to go on to different, uh, different responsibilities and different, uh, different schools, and those who are uh, who haven't done so well, they usually get infantry and they're put out there as cannon fodder. So how well we do today has an impact on the options and opportunities uh, in the future. So as we've seen, we go through these childhood skills. Now they interact. They really do. The first two go together. You confess sin, and instantly you're again walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit is filling you with His Word. But the next three involve getting into the Word so that the Holy Spirit has tools to use in transforming you. And as you master those things, then you hit spiritual adolescence, where you have to decide, are you going to really grow up, or are you going to be Peter Pan? Are you just going to try to stay a kid all the time? And that's where we are. So we looked at this last time. We saw that the destiny of every believer is to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom in the future. And that we'll be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ for those rewards and responsibilities. And that we must learn to live in light of that future uh, destiny. 1 Peter 1.17 says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. But that's got to be qualified. That's work that's done by walking by the Spirit. We're to conduct ourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. In fear. That's not a fear of terror, but that is a sobering fear recognizing that there one day will be an evaluation and we must live in light of it. It's the kind of fear that invaded your soul when you realized if you did certain things, then that when you got home, you would suffer serious consequences. I went to high school here at Bel Air High School and the assistant principal's name was Ivy Hollister and I didn't know it till his funeral that he was just a giant of a hero in World War II. He went over the North Africa campaign, Sicily campaign, D-Day, and across Europe. I never knew that. Even though his wife was my mother's roommate in college and best friend. Now, we know that one of the responsibilities of an assistant, uh, assistant principal in his school is to engage in discipline and that those who do not abide by the rules in the school will get disciplined, but the school can only go so far. But he had permission from my parents to do whatever you think is necessary, and then we'll take care of the rest when he gets home. I had to always live in light of what would happen in that office. <laughs> it kept me from 
It kept me from doing some things, but it also taught me to be exceptionally careful and sneaky in other ways. One time, I was in the restroom during lunch on a forged hall pass because my band teacher would often give me hall passes to go in and rehearse when I was in a study hall or something else. Since study hall was fourth period, I would... Um, I would often go and practice, but sometimes I would just write the thing out, hit a simple signature to forge, and I would go have lunch with my buddies. And I had gone to the restroom, and there were all these guys in there as usual smoking, and so the coach walked in right after me and rounded everybody up as smokers and to take us down there. Well, there were about 20 guys. I managed to find myself at the end of the line. The coach didn't know me because I didn't take P.E., so he rounded a corner, and I went ar- turned around and went back and rounded other corners very rapidly. That's my sin nature in operation. So um, we have to conduct ourselves in terms of fear. So I knew what was going to happen if I had gone into the assistant principal's office. Revelation 22.12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. We've looked at these, that our position in Christ is that we're alive together with him, we are raised together with him, and we're seated together with him in the heavenlies. That's who we are in terms of our identity. We all have that identity. So all believers will be saved, raptured, and be with Christ and serve with Christ in the future. However, many believers will have few, if any, responsibilities in the future, though they will be in heaven. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. A reward is earned. That's not salvation. Salvation is a free gift. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 we looked at, telling us that there would be the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through, through 15, especially 15, tells us that we're evaluated and given rewards, but if anyone's work is completely burned up, he will suffer loss. Not loss of salvation, because it goes on to say, but he himself will be saved. And I pointed out last time that uh, Alex Lazurka has been listening to all... He has consumed all my talks on this because he comes out of a background in Romanian Christianity where there, there's no teaching of eternal security and all these reward passages are taught as salvation. And he has been set free in the last couple of weeks. He is just so excited about this. He says, suddenly everything makes much more sense than it ever did before. So we rejoice at that. We looked at 1 Corinthians 9. Now, we look at this passage. I love this passage. I love to have fun with this passage and teaching this issue because it is about punctuation. But I'm going to tell you something else this morning. It's about more than punctuation. The verse is says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ... If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, that's how I've normally translated this, putting a comma after heirs of God, which makes it distinct from being a joint heir with Christ. Now, most people in Christianity 
follow the punctuation that you have in most translations. Problem is, the commas are in the wrong place. You always have trouble with commas. So this comma says, I constantly feel out of place. Poor comma. See, if you don't put your commas in the right place, you're going to communicate the wrong thing. I like cooking my family and my pets. That works a lot better if you put commas. I like cooking, comma, my family, comma, and my pets. See, I like the Oxford comma. Now, here's another one. Don't wear black people. Has to do with homecoming. See, the t upper text, homecoming idea. Don't wear black people. No, you have to have a comma. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why commas are a huge benefit to the English language. Don't wear black, comma, people. This is one I think is one of my favorites. I love the history. Charles I walked and talked half an hour after his head was cut off. <laughs> it should be Charles I walked and talked, period. Half an hour after, comma, his head was cut off. Or Johnny said the teacher was stupid. That could either be Johnny said the teacher was stupid or Johnny said the teacher was stupid. Commas can make all the difference in the world. And guess what? In the original Greek, there are no commas. So the translator has to determine where the commas go. And it changes theology, and it indicates the theology of the translator. So in this slide, I have a, a picture of the original translation of the King James Bible. You can't read it very well because King James English was really different from today, and contrary to what King James only people will attempt to argue, it's been modified and translated and changed many times since 1611. So you see, they, they had trouble with this. They said, if children, comma, then heirs, comma, heirs of God, comma, which separates the two, and joint heirs with Christ, but then they put a colon there, which seems to fit, take the whole first clause there, which would include both heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, as being contingent upon suffering. Down here you have a picture of how that is in the, the original. But they're missing something beyond just the theology that that communicates. But this is true in many in many English translations, here we have the NASB 95. Notice that heirs of God does not have a comma after it. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are linked together with the conjunction and. So they're seen as being somewhat synonymous and dependent. Both are dependent on suffering with him. Now, do you have a problem with that? If our heirship with God is dependent upon suffering with him, then that's a work salvation. The World English Bible and the ASV, 
do pretty much the same thing, except they put a colon like the old King James did after Christ. And Romans 8.17 is the ESV and NIV, and they put an M dash, that's a long dash. You have a dash, an N dash, which is a little bit longer, and an M dash, which is much longer. If children, then heirs, and then they use that M dash to offset it, but they're still putting heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ as somewhat synonymous, linking them together where both are dependent upon suffering with him in order that we may also be glorified. So here we have (coughs) that particular view expressed. The problem is it ignores something that is untranslatable in the Greek. Well, usually it's not translated, (coughs) but it has something to do with the way the sentence is structured. I'm going to translate it here. In first-year Greek, you learn this, when there are several different kinds of conjunctions and things that you are saying, you use something called a men-de construction. This is when the clause or multiple phrases are introduced by the Greek word men, which isn't translatable. And then at the end, it says, has another thing added that is introduced by the conjunction de, which is usually translated and or but. When you have a men de, it means on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. So if we translate it that way, it makes even more sense. And if, that's a first class condition, assuming the condition is true. And if children... Then heirs, on the one hand, that's the men, on the one hand, heirs of God, and on the other hand, that's the death, on the other hand, joint heirs with Christ. So even though Greek didn't have commas, by using this men-death construction, it makes it very clear that what we're talking about is two different kinds of heirship. You have heirs of God, which applies to all believers. We'll all have resurrection bodies. We None of us will have a sin nature. We're all glorified. We will all be spending eternity with God and Christ in first heaven and then in the kingdom and then on into eternity. Joint heirs with Christ is contingent upon those who suffer, those who grow spiritually. We have to talk about what suffering means because there are people who think that suffering has, well, I've never really been persecuted for my faith. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Because it's hard for us to recognize that perhaps because we're a believer, there are people who may not have anything to do with us, may have shunned us, may not have ever talked to us, may have rejected us, maybe people have gossiped about us or made fun of us, behind our back, and we never knew it. That is what happens when we live in the devil's world. So our conclusions from this are, number one, every Christian builds on the foundation of their salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is the promised and prophesied Messiah, who, like the Passover lamb, died as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. That's the foundation We then build on our lives. We build with two kinds of works. We build with moral works, 
which God has nothing to do with. We're just trying to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and do the right thing apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's the wood, hay, and straw of 1 Corinthians 3. Or we build by walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit or the works of our character transformation. And these divinely enabled spiritual works have eternal value. That's expressed as gold, silver, and precious stones. So we have two kinds of believers, those with rewards, those without, but all are saved. Now, in this life, we can't determine which is which. But at the judgment seat of Christ, we will. So what we've learned is that we're not saved by works, but works works don't indicate salvation. But works follow. That is, works done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second point, works are rewardable, and we're saved as a gift, but works, but rewards are earned. Works must be done. Third, works must be done by walking in the Spirit. And fourth, we can only know the difference at the judgment seat of Christ. Fifth, passages that talk about disqualification or loss or a dog returning to its vomit in Second Peter 3, or at the end of Second Peter 2, returning to its vomit, etc., are all talking about believers who live like the unsaved Gentiles. It's not saying they're not saved. It's saying that they're living as if they're not saved. So six, we are to, uh, we are to live in light of eventual evaluation with rewards and responsibilities. So why do we suffer? This is a big problem for a lot of people. It is almost always articulated in the form of an expression that indicates self-absorption and self-pity. Why did God let this happen to me? It's not about God. It's all about me. I'm the center of the universe, so why did God let this happen to me? I grew up in a home where my mother had a significant disability. She would cringe if she heard me say that. She hated to be referred to as someone with either A, a disability, or B, a handicap. But she had polio when she was seven months, not quite seven months, or right at seven months pregnant with me. And she had three types of polio. There's a muscular, there's a nerve, and there's a respiratory. She had all three kinds of polio. She had hepatitis, encephalitis, a kidney infection, a bladder infection, and me at the same time. So I never saw my mother walk. She was always in a wheelchair. I didn't see my mother for about nine months, I think, nine or ten months, because after she got out of the hospital here, she was at Jeff Davis. She would also cringe if I said that because Jeff Davis was the county hospital at that time where all the indigent, poor, and welfare people went but it's where the polio ward was. So it was the Ben Taub before Ben Taub. So she just, whenever I would tell people where I was born, she would say, don't tell them. Don't tell anybody where you, no, no. So I didn't see her for nine months, which means I'm mentally and emotionally disturbed because I didn't have that nurture of my mother when I was born. So that means I'm, Helpless and hopeless. Don't you love psychology? 
you know, I was well-loved because all of my mother's close friends and family took care of me. And I had a lot of second, second mothers. But anyway, the question was, as a kid, was why did God let this happen to my mother? And my mother would give me good, solid, biblical answers. This was God's plan, and we may not understand why. I've always formed, my mother had a strong will. When I was in high school, I bought, I, I bought, I, I was at Fort Hood, and I bought a second armored division decal to put on the back of her wheelchair. Second armored division motto was, hell on wheels. <laughs> I have always thought that if God had not limited her by, by the wheelchair, I don't know what sort of Problems she would have gotten herself into. So God used that to restrain her. But I don't know. I'll find out when I get to heaven. But there were times when she would, because later she had strokes and about 10 years before she died, and then she was paralyzed on the left side of her body as well as from the waist down. And that was really hard, and she fought. Sometimes she lost, and she would get self-absorbed. And why is God letting this happen to me? We all do that at times. So we have to understand what the Bible teaches about Christian suffering. First of all, we have to define it. I have four aspects to understanding the definition. First of all, it's not necessarily an enormous event, situation, or problem. Suffering for Christ is not necessarily persecution. Suffering is what happens to all of us just because we live in the devil's world. We'll see that. B, suffering is any difficulty in life that affects our comfortable circumstances. As Jim pointed out the other night, the greatest desire of most people is just to be comfortable. They don't want to be bothered by things. They don't want difficulty. They don't want anything upsetting their apple cart. They just want to be comfortable and calm without any anything to disrupt it. Some some people think that suffering means, like Job's friends did, that he did something that brought it about. Um, one barometer that you might use to determine if you're going through some sort of suffering is when you have mental attitude sins of irritation, anger, resentment, impatience, grief, sorrow, sadness, or depression. That's an emotional reaction to difficulties in life. That's what suffering is. It's anything that, that seems to upset our, our comfortable circumstances. Or it could be any situation in life which we wish we had better, better circumstances. It can be physical. It can be related to food, shelter, and clothing. It could be related to income, job, career, or health. It can be people. We all know people who bring a little bit of suffering or a lot of suffering into our lives because we have to put up with them. I had to put up with this nasty little 13, 12, 13-year-old 13 kid in junior high. And when I graduated ninth grade, I thought, thank God I will never see him again. He went to a different high school. But he showed up at Stephen F. Austin and was in ROTC. Today we have lunch and go shooting at least once a month. 
he wasn't a believer when he was a kid. He didn't become a believer until he'd been in the military for a few years, and uh, now he's a deacon over at Second Baptist. But we have a great time along with another guy that was in band with us back when we were 12 years old. So you never know what will happen, but people can cause great, great anguish. And it can be mental. It can be mental attitude sins. It can be fear, worry about circumstances. It can be anguish over your children. It can be despair over your parents. And I'm not talking about when you're a teenager. That's just teenage angst when you don't like your parents. I'm talking about when you're 60 and you're... 85 or 90-year-old parents are now demented and you don't know who they are, but you're taking care of them. That's difficult. I've been there. So we, this is suffering in the devil's world. So the causes for suffering, first of all, Adamic responsibility. We can always blame Adam. There's going to be a long line in heaven. I'm sure of this. It's the result of the fall of sin. We live in a sinful world. We live with spiritually dead people. Genesis 2.17 lays down the issue, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will certainly die. And that separation from God leads to everything that we see in life. I mean, this, this leads to all the horrors of combat, the horrors of war, the horrors of famines, the horrors of of meteorological disasters, uh, child abuse, uh, divorce, death, loss of money, loss of income. And instead of getting angry with God, we need to go back to this, that we live in a, in a world with fallen sinners. And because of that, we have to deal with the fact that life is never going to be what somewhere deep in our soul we know it ought to be. We have seen death, death of friends, death of family, death of pets. And we say, say deep in our soul, this isn't right. Our souls know that. And so we go through the anguish of loss. We also have suffering because of our own bad decisions. Those consequences come back to haunt us. There are some decisions we make when we are young that, that will plague us until the day we die. There are other decisions that we make that maybe the consequences aren't as bad as we thought, or God in his grace kept us from experiencing the consequences of those bad decisions. Scripture says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. I just simply, if you make bad decisions and there are bad consequences, it's your own fault. He who sows to the flesh will reap of the flesh. That's the sin nature. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And that's not talking about getting saved, justification. That's talked about the quality of life there because it's in a context of that, that uh, uh, Galatians 5 talking about walking by the Spirit as a believer. Other causes are, are divine discipline. God says, okay, you're reaping you know, the consequences, but I've got to turn the fire up a little bit because you're so stubborn and you're so resistant that I've got to get a couple of two-by-fours out and start hitting you between the eyes with them. 
Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 quote from Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. This is divine love. If God loves us through discipline, then we ought to love our children the same way. Discipline isn't necessarily uh, retribution and harsh punishment. It, it, the purpose in discipline is to teach them to discipline and have self-control, to discipline themselves and to control their emotions, control their decisions, their actions, their lusts, things of that nature. These verses say, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Isn't that important? Most people don't want to associate discipline with love because their their definition of love comes out of the dictionary, not out of the Bible. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he, he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. It teaches endurance. Point four, we suffer because we're connected to someone involved in two or three. Okay, what was two? They made bad decisions, individual responsibility, and they made bad decisions, and because we're closely associated to them, there are parents, there are siblings, there are friends, there are spouses, there are children, They make bad decisions, and we have to suffer consequences because of their bad decisions. So, and in point number three, God may be bringing them through divine discipline, and we get to go along for the ride. We don't always know why we're going through things, and sometimes God multitasks. Fifth, we live in the devil's world. We, rule, we are ruled by the rules of the devil's world, what I call the cosmic system, K, cosmos with a K, not with a C, because this is a term cosmos, which is translated world in the scriptures. Because we live in the devil's world, we're watching Putin attack Ukraine. Because we live in the devil's world, we have had multiple presidents who have given as their legacy Uh, an unbelievable amount of debt, whether they are from the left or the right or the middle. We have lived in a world where there are so many making so many bad decisions and teaching the wrong things in our universities that it, it is leading us to a social and national crisis that we may not survive. But as believers, we know we will and that God's going to use us in a great way in the midst of that. Now, personally, the Lord may use this for a lot of different ways. This is where Romans 8.28 comes into play for uh, we know that all things work together for good, that not all things are good, but God will use them to work together for good to those who love him, to them who are called according to his purpose. It's a wake-up call evangelistically. Acts 16 The angel caused the chains to fall off of all the prisoners in the jail, and they could have easily run off and escaped, and if they had, that would have cost the jailer his life. God wanted his attention, though. Nobody left, and he came in there and saw that. He turned to Paul and said, What must I do to be saved? Paul told him and explained the gospel and the details, and the man and his family were saved. 
It's a wake-up call evangelistically. Suffering gives us a chance to minister to others with the gospel and information about the Christian life. Seventh, it teaches us to learn the Bible, drives us sometimes to Bible class. Too many people, though, just come when they're going through hard times, and then as soon as they're done, they haven't learned their lesson, and they go back to not going. Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. God takes us through the, lets us, sometimes permissive will, go through these things so that we'll be forced to go back to the Word and to learn about Him. Eighth, to be a witness to our neighbors, friends, those around us, as well as the angels. First Timothy 1.16, And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience in who? In, in Paul. As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Some people are examples of God's punishment. They're going to be failures as believers, but they're there to be a negative example. I don't want to be one of those people. Others are there as positive examples because they're going to apply the word and be a source of strength to others. I love reading good Christian biographies of people who just went through amazing things hard things, difficult things, maybe disease. Annie Johnson Flint wrote, He giveth more grace. This is a woman who, when she was two years old, her mother gave birth to her little sister, and the little sister, I mean, and the mother died. Her father had a fatal disease. He was terminally ill, so family members took the two little girls in and in God's grace, they were given to a couple that adopted them, and they were strong believers. When she was in her early to mid-twenties, she contracted debilitating arthritis and was then bedridden for 30 years. And she wrote, He giveth more grace. You just think about that. I mean, I don't have any problems when I think about her. But I think I love that hymn. He giveth more grace. Ninth point, we're a witness in the angelic conflict, Ephesians three ten, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Not West Houston Bible Church, but the church, capital C, the body of Christ, to the rulers and the authorities, that's the angels in the heavenly places. It's not only the holy angels, but also the demons. We are an example to the angelic hosts, holy and fallen. And we go through it that we may comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. 2 Corinthians 1.4 God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I knew the pastor of Katy Bible Church many, many years ago. We ran into each other at some pastor's conferences, attempted to play at golf a couple of times at the Campanile Pastor's Conference. And he always impressed me that he was a man who 
literally oozed compassion and mercy for others. His wife had had and was continuing to have a series of debilitating strokes and had to have care 24-7. They had to hire a caregiver that cost money. And this man had learned the comfort of the Lord in that. And that went on for, I think, maybe 25 years as he had to deal with that. But I have never, ever met anybody who had and just, just, he didn't try to be comforting. He just had to be there. It affected his whole demeanor. I have never seen anybody. You knew that when you talked to him about a problem, his problems were far greater than ours, but he understood that the grace of God was the only way to get through it. I mean, it was just amazing. But that's what God, how God uses us. So what we have learned is that each of us will be rewarded by a judge who has suffered as we have, yet without sin. Second, that all believers in Christ are heirs of God. And third, that believers who are faithful, who receive an additional inheritance, will be will hear from our Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. So that is part of what it means to live today in light of eternity. We'll come back in real next time and look at the fact that the word hope is what is often associated with this, both in the Old Testament and in the New, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we've had this opportunity to reflect upon your word, to be reminded that, that we are to live today in light of our future evaluation, our future rewards, our future position and privilege in the kingdom and on into eternity that you who are the perfect judge, who are perfectly omniscient, will justly and righteously evaluate us, but that that is also tempered by your grace and your mercy. And that when we are in eternity, we will know that all things are for you. Revelation tells us that the crowns, the rewards that we have, we will throw at your feet. It's not about us and what we're going to have in the kingdom. It's about serving you. And that our capacity for doing that is developed in this life. Challenge us with these things. Father, we pray that any who are listening who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, we pray that you will help them understand this is a free gift. They do not do nothing to earn it or deserve it. They do nothing to keep it. It is a free gift that is given without strings, and they cannot lose it by anything that they do. It is a free gift, no strings attached. So, Father, we pray that they will understand that it is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Just trust, only trust, only faith, and only Christ. That is the path to salvation. Instantly at that time we have everlasting life that can never be taken from us. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.